Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. All of the wars and all of the craziness and, I mean, what we see happening in the nations today, I think we have to recognize that Satan is not bound in any kind of a total sense, although he has been bound in one sense, and that is he no longer is able to hold a person when the gospel comes to liberate them. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian resumes his teaching on Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. Now, here's Pastor Brian. If our understanding is correct, we, we're looking at this as something that's yet future, and Christ has already come, and Christ has offered the ultimate sacrifice for sin. So some would say that you can't take these types of passages literally, that you, you, know, you, you can't take it at face value. You've got to understand that it, it must be, you have to understand it more spiritually than literally. And so if you consider it that way, what might it mean? Well, it, it could just be, and here's where what, what happens if you take that approach. If you take a non-literal approach, then you are going to have to, in some ways, it's going to have to be generalized because the details, which are many, apparently aren't significant, and you just kind of have to draw a general conclusion from it. So what general conclusion might we draw from this if this is not literal? Well, it would just be describing in familiar terms that the saints will engage in the worship of God into eternity. So that, that is how it would be understood by those who do not believe that this is uh, to be taken literally. Now, since, as I've already alluded to, the New Testament tells us that Christ offered one sacrifice for sin forever, that does pose a problem to think that these could be literal sacrifices for sin in the future. This would even come close in some people's mind to blasphemy because then what, then what you end up saying is that you're, what you're really saying is that the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary did not do what the scriptures plainly said it did do, which means it was a one-time atonement for sin. Now, many good people throughout a very long history have opted for that view over the literal understanding. Because for them, it was just, well, look, you know, whatever this means, uh, we don't know. But what we do know is that in the New Testament, it's clear that Christ offered one sacrifice for sin forever. So there, there can't be any further sacrifices for sin. This 
this view has a, a theological name, and that theological name is amillennialism, or if you're British, it's amillennialism, and the AA, it just simply means no millennium. So millennium means thousand years. So the no millennial position says that there is no literal thousand year reign of Christ on the earth over the nation of Israel with a restored people in the land and a restored temple and a restored priesthood and a restored sacrifice and and all of those things. That's all just figurative language. And like I said, it it generally just means that we're going to worship God forever. But uh, there is no 1,000 year reign of Christ. And in Revelation chapter 20, the six times that it refers to the 1,000 years, 1,000 there doesn't mean literally 1,000. It's just an indefinite period of time. And 1,000 is a long number. So it's just a way of describing an indefinite period of time. And as I said, uh, this this view has been held by many for a very, very long time. Now, the other view, the view that would take it literally, is called premillennialism. And premillennial, so amillennial means no millennium. And, and what that means is that there, there, there is just, again, there's, there's no like thousand year reign before Christ comes back. There's a belief that Christ is going to come back, but there, there is no reign over Israel as a distinct people. Now, premillennialism says that Christ is going to come back and he's going to come back before the thousand years. As a matter of fact, he's going to be the one to inaugurate the thousand years. And the thousand years will be a literal reign of Christ over the people of Israel in the land of Israel. Now, this was the dominant view in the church from the apostolic period until the fourth century. So for about three almost uh, 400 years, this was the dominant view. They read this passage, and even though it was probably problematic to them as well, they understood that, okay, there's, somehow there's going to be a new temple and there's going to be a priesthood and all of that's going to happen. Um, some very notable names historically in as far as some of the early church fathers, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and many, many others, they, they all held to this premillennial view, which I think you could also argue that the apostles held to the same view. Now, they took these passages to have a future literal fulfillment. The New Testament itself said things like this. Speaking of Jesus, the, the prophecy at his birth, uh, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. So he's going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob over Israel. Jesus speaking to his apostles, who, of course, were all Israelites. He said to them at the end of Luke's gospel, 
or toward the end of Luke's gospel, he said to them, he said, you will sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, when Jesus said that to them, what do they think? They thought, okay, the 12 tribes of Israel, they knew who that was. That was who they were, part of that. So Jesus is telling them that they're going to be seated on that. And then remember in the early part of the book of Acts, maybe you remember there, where before the ascension of Jesus, the apostles come to him and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So in their minds, they're thinking that there is a a fulfillment really of all of those prophecies that were given by Isaiah and by Ezekiel and by Daniel and by Zechariah and so forth. Now, as I said, from the first of the fourth century, this was the dominant view. But as time went on in that period, the understanding of what the millennium would be like began to be kind of distorted and even a bit perverted. And people started talking about the millennium like it was going to be kind of just like a big party, a big feast, kind of like a big orgy even. And they became known as the Kyleist. Now, Kyle is related to the idea of millennial or a thousand years. So Kyleism or the Kyleist, this became like a, kind of like a cult in some senses, like like a cultic sort of an idea that, again, took away just, you know, the beauty of what the prophecy said and, and kind of perverted them. Now, because of that, some began to question the validity of this. Some began to challenge it. And the most famous person who resisted this position was a man named Augustine. Now, Augustine goes down as probably the the greatest post-apostolic theological mind in the history of the church. He's he's considered um, equally as uh, important by Roman Catholics and Protestants. Both claim him as their champion in many ways. And so Augustine, um, the, the idea of Kyleism was this, you know, everything was reduced to kind of a materialistic, uh, pleasure-oriented kind of a, a perspective. And Augustine was a person who, for him, pleasure was problematic, he had some ascetic ideas, uh, especially regarding sex. Augustine believed that you should never have sex for pleasure. So the Catholic teaching throughout all the centuries that uh, sex was only to be for procreation. That's why birth control was forbidden by the Catholic Church, because if you're taking birth control and having sex, you're obviously having sex for pleasure. And pleasure is not good. And this came from Augustine. So when he looked at this whole Kyleistic concept of this thousand-year reign of Christ and saw this distorted teaching of, again, just a big pleasure fest, 
he came out in force against it. And he won the day. And so from the fourth century through the eight to the 18th century, this was the dominant view in the church. So amillennialism through Augustine became the dominant view from approximately 400 to sometime in the 18, probably 1700s, but it became, the other view became again more dominant in the 1800s. So, and Augustine's version of it, it changed over time. So by the time you get to the Reformation period in the 16th century and the reformers who all come from a Catholic background, who all have an identical eschatology, so they all believe the, this amillennial position, they make some adjustments to it, but, the, but it's, in essence, it's pretty much the same. So what, I, I want to kind of summarize for you what the position would have been. So it would be these things. Number one, no restoration of national Israel. The church has replaced Israel. That's the idea. So all those promises that talked about a future glorious thing for Israel, those are now applied to the church. Thousand years is not literal. It's just a symbolic number. It's really just an indefinite period of time. Another main feature of this teaching is that Satan is is bound during this period because Revelation 20 says that he would be bound for a thousand years. The gospel would keep advancing until the world was converted. A big emphasis would be on the kingdom is here now. It's not something we're waiting for in the future. And then Christ will come eventually and set up the eternal kingdom. But there are really no indicators of when Christ might return. There's no indicators. There's no, you know, we talk about an antichrist and things like that. There, those types of details are not part of, the, uh, of this understanding. Now, this is still a very, very popular view among many, many, many Christians. Could be still the dominant view. But let's think about these things for a moment. No restoration of Israel. Well, again, the problem with that is that the prophets certainly seem to indicate that there would be a ultimate final restoration of Israel. That's everything we've been reading about here in Ezekiel. We read about it in Jeremiah. We read about it in Isaiah. It's all through the prophets that there will be a future restoration for Israel that God will fulfill to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their natural descendants, their blood descendants, he will fulfill the promises that he made to them. The entire Old Testament is laced with that. And so if you're going to say we can't take these things literally, then you're going to have to take at least half of your Old Testament and you're going to have to say, we can't really understand what this means uh, in any kind of specific sense. We might just generally draw some conclusions that, okay, the kingdom of God's gonna come. 
But I find it hard to believe that God would have the prophets spend all the time they spent giving the minutest detail of things if this was all just not really literal. It was just all in some way symbolic, but yet nobody can really understand what the symbolism is. So, thousand years not literal, why not? They say, well, it's only, it's only spoken of six times. Well, there are, there are issues in the Bible, like the doctrine of original sin, for example, that's really only spoken of like one time. But nobody doubts the doctrine of original sin because it's only spoken of one time. So six times, that's quite a few times, actually, for something to be spoken of and to be restated over and over in the same passage. It's almost like the Lord's just saying, okay, look, listen, get this, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. Satan is bound. Can we honestly say that, that Satan is bound? Now think of it. Revelation 20 says he's bound in a very specific way. Now, we know that Jesus, of course, he spoke of binding the devil. And obviously he did. We, we know from Colossians chapter two that Jesus triumphed over the principalities and powers through the cross. But we also know that, as Peter tells us, that the devil is still going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So whatever happened on the cross didn't affect on every level, the activity of the devil. Now, Revelation 20 says specifically that he would be bound and deceive the nations no more. I think we could argue very easily that for the past 2,000 years, nations have been deceived. And all of the wars and the carnage and all of the craziness. And I mean, what we see happening in the nations today I think we have to recognize that Satan is not bound in any kind of a total sense, although he has been bound in one sense, and that is he no longer is able to hold a person when the gospel comes to liberate them. So the gospel is the, is the thing that, that binds him. He, he's no longer capable of holding those whom the gospel would set free. So um, the gospel advancing until the world is converted. Now, there, there were times in history where, where people thought that we're on the trajectory toward that. And there, there's actually one other position called post-millennialism. It's kind of somewhere between the two. And in the 1800s, this became very popular and the idea with postmillennialism is that Christ would come at the end of the millennium, after the millennium, and that the church was going to Christianize the world and prepare it for the coming of Jesus. So when Jesus came, the world would have been converted through the efforts of the church. Now, I, I think that was a wrong view, but it, it really did lead to some good things happening. It lit the fire for missions under you know, a few generations of people. Got the gospel out around the world. It encouraged people to engage in you know, social justice. During the Industrial Revolution, it caused people to go out and say, you know, we, we've got to 
have um, better working conditions and we've got to have protection for children and prison reform and all kinds of, there some really good things came from people being motivated by this idea. But there, there still is that among some, you know, the idea that Christ will come and, and or, or that the, the gospel will advance and the world will slowly but surely be converted. So, you know, back at the, the turn of the, from the 19th to the 20th century, there was a thought that that's the way things were headed. And then the First World War came. And shortly afterward, the Second World War came. And then more wars followed, and the 20th century became the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. And so the idea, and I remember reading uh, an author some years ago, a well-known Bible commentator, and, and a number at that time, they, they saw that, they, they thought that it was just a matter of time before the world was Christianized. There was one man who was a very devoted, very brilliant scholar on Islam. He had written much on Islam. He had lived in the Islamic world. He had been a missionary. He was a professor at Yale eventually. And he wrote back in like the 20s that he could see that within his lifetime, Islam would disappear from the face of the earth. That's how anemic Islam was at the time. And it seemed that the gospel was Christianizing the world. But of course, everything changed. The kingdom is here. Uh, Christ will come eventually, set up God's eternal kingdom. But this thing about no indicators, this is the interesting thing to me, because if you talk to somebody who holds this position, they have no indicators whatsoever of what, what kind, any kind of a, of a time frame for the coming of Christ. It just, you know, and you, you will hear people who hold this position say something like, well, you know, they, they might say, well, the Lord could come any day, but of course he could come a thousand years from now as well. Because they don't have, they don't have any, they don't have any markers to, to judge anything by because the theology doesn't really lend itself to those markers. But again, I think in, in the Old Testament, God certainly gave markers for the coming of the Messiah the first time. And Jesus seems to give markers for his second coming because he says to the disciples, when you see these things happen, look up, lift up your head. He gives a number of things. So I think these are serious problems with this position, the position of amillennialism. But there are a couple of positive things to it. There are a couple of positive things. Number one is they do recognize rightly that the kingdom is already here. And I'm going to kind of walk through premillennialism in a moment and show you where premillennialism has some weaknesses, some problems. 
November, Back to Basics Radio is offering a timely resource titled One Minute Answers to Skeptics by Charlie Campbell. Has a skeptic in your life ever stumped you with questions regarding God, social ethics, or supposed contradictions in the Bible? Well, with this book, One Minute Answers to Skeptics, Concise Responses to the Top 50 Objections and Questions by Charlie Campbell, you can be equipped to address the questions of skeptics on those exact topics and many others. If you want to be equipped to always be ready to give a defense of the faith, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order One Minute Answers to Skeptics by Charlie Campbell. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ezekiel. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.